St. Augustine, St. Augustine wrote back in the 400s a book called, it's kind of one of Christian classics, it's, it's called The City of God. And Augustine wrote The City of God kind of as an argument uh, for the value of Christianity against arguments that were being put forth against Christianity because the Vandals had sacked uh, Rome just a number of years earlier. And so the, the Roman Empire had gone largely Christian uh, less than 100 years earlier under Constantine, the Emperor Constantine. And so it had kind of become largely Christian. And then at the end of the 300s, the Vandals sack Rome. And a lot of pagans basically looked at that and said, it's because of Christianity. And so there was a charge, a pagan charge against Christianity that Augustine sought to refute. And the, the charge went like this. It was that drought and Christianity go hand in hand. Drought and Christianity go hand in hand. So Augustine wrote this big, massive, thousand-page book, kind of talking and arguing against that. Interesting thing for me this morning is that phrase, drought and Christianity go hand in hand, because I think that it, it is alive and well as a felt, you know, either a public charge or a felt charge against Christianity, that it's somehow dead, lifeless, bad, nothing good kind of comes from it, and I don't know how we get it, but we're, as kids, here's good or laws or rules we're told to obey. Just shut up and obey. Obey, do as I say. And we kind of begin to develop this idea that rules, following rules, isn't fun. I mean, is that fair enough, right? Following rules, doing what mom and dad say, just isn't fun. And so then we grow up, and now as adults, we've got God here and following his rules would be over here, be walking towards it. And the same thing is kind of there like it was with parents. Uh, just obey. Follow the rules. Don't ask questions. And we have that same kind of natural instinctive response that we did with our parents. And it's like, yeah, that just doesn't sound like, like much fun. In fact, it sounds lifeless, dead, boring, frustrating, stifling to the point that we begin to label God a killjoy in our minds. God kills joy. He, he, he takes it away. It's, um, it's not fun. Following rules and doing what we're told isn't fun. And then we develop the view that to actually walk away from this, to go this direction, we, we're going to find happiness. So to walk away from God is to, is to have fun and to find happiness to walk toward God and to obey God's commands, just like with your parents, is a drag. It's not fun. It's, it's, it's a killjoy. Whether, whether you know it or not, whether you believe it or not, whether you think about it or not, that's, that's what we bring into our faith. We, we bring that there, that tension. And we don't want to, in some sense, stifle our happiness. So we're left with a dilemma. We, we follow God and we're miserable. Or we leave God and we can be happy. That's kind of the felt reality. I remember watching the, the movie Dead Poet Society. And it had a profound spiritual impact in my life. I think I was in like ninth grade at the time or, or whatever. Somewhere in there. I was in high school. Early high school. And I remember watching the movie. And if you remember that movie, The Dead Poet Society with Robin Williams. They, these boys kind of start reading old poets. And one of them, uh, 
was reading Thoreau, or they were reading Thoreau, and, and their mantra became, um, suck the marrow out of life. Or they were taught by their teacher, kind of, this is what Thoreau said, suck the marrow out of life. And that phrase just always stuck with me, man. I just remember for months and months after that movie thinking about that, like, yeah. And you remember the Latin phrase they use in that movie all the time, carpe diem, seize the day. Robin Williams, like, whispered it in their ears, and it's real creepy. Like, seize the day, boys. Like, um, <laughs> you guys remember that? So carpe diem, suck the marrow out of life. And those phrases to me were, were so life-affirming. They were so life-affirming. It's like, yeah, there's something there, like, just to grab hold of, to go for, to strive for, to be motivated by, to embrace. So life-affirming and, and following rules or following God is so life-negating and, and deadening and stifling. And, and I, I remember almost ripping in two at that point and then ultimately deciding to kind of walk away and pursue sucking the marrow out of life. Which meant pursuing happiness, which means walking away from God. Does that sound familiar at all? I think we see it everywhere, if not in your own life, with your friends, with people you know. If you go back and think of college, it's this real tension and people eventually, a lot of them, will let go and pursue happiness. And they feel like God is the thing they have to leave in order to do that. This morning, we're going to look at, in my mind, the most significant passage that argues against this view of life. That this view, the way I, I laid it out, this dichotomy is just wrong. It's just completely upside down. And, and we've kind of been raised up into a church culture that's handed this to us. And we don't realize how nonsensical it is. So let's dive in. Um, John chapter 15. John chapter 15, starting in verse 9, and it restates something. It says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. And the whole theme, if you remember, of John 15 here is remaining in Christ's love. Remaining in Him as a branch would remain in a vine. That, that there needs to be an organic relationship, an intimate relationship to abide, to remain. And Jesus restates it here and He says, As the Father's loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. That's really what it means to have a relationship with me, is to enjoy my love. It's the first thing He says, and then the second thing, by the way, that's a philosophy of ministry. If if you want to know what a church should be doing, what a high school ministry should be doing, what a college ministry should be doing, uh, what our, our children's ministry should be doing, ministry is really about trying to take people or kids and do our best to, to put them as far into that vine as we can. It's not to breathe spiritual life into them. It's not to give them some kind of uh, um, anything the, the drive gear, the mechanism, it's just simply to be a handmaiden. Um, is that handmaiden? Midwife? I don't know. Those are bad. I'm using bad analogies. But it's to be the middleman. Now we switch to men. Um, it's, to, it's to plug them into Christ as far as you can and get, then get out of the way. It's not to create a dependency. I'm the teacher. I'm the one in authority. You be dependent on me. And this is a wonderful relationship you are dependent upon. It's to get out of the way and just plug people into Christ, into that relationship as much as possible. Sunday morning is a tool whereby hopefully through the week you guys are reading your Bibles, praying, like uh, getting into solitude, enjoying the fellowship of, of the Lord and just having that relationship. This isn't the be all end all. It's, it's the tool to try and connect you to God, to connect you to Christ. That's that's. Simply put, the philosophy of ministry. So, remain in Christ, and then we get the second part of this, and it says this. 
just as I, uh, if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. Let me say that again. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. Okay, that's the deal breaker, right? Isn't that the disconnect? It says remain here. Okay, okay, sounds good. By obeying my commands, all right, I'm out. There you go bossing me around again. There you go telling me what to do. There you go um, stepping in on my fun. You know, just like when I was a kid and I was making mud pies out in the backyard and my parents came and told me to stop doing that and they just ruined all my fun. So that's the deal breaker. I need to go seize the day and hang out with Robin Williams. Um, there's, a, there's a very real thing here that we have to grab hold of, and that's that we're taught or we intuit over time that obeying commands is in and of itself the goal. And we develop then what motivates us to obey commands. We don't desire them. We don't like them. It's not what we want. So to do it, we do it out of duty. Does that make sense? When, you, when you're just told to obey and you don't understand why and you don't want to obey, but you're going to obey anyways, you choose to do it out of duty. It's not desire, it's the will. Do you understand where I'm going with this? So we, if we're going to obey, we do it because it's our duty. When we say something's our duty, we just leave it there. Don't ask questions, you just do it. All you have to do is do it. That's the whole point of doing it is to do it. Um, and, and what that's so familiar to us about rules and about laws but what we don't understand is every rule, every law is put there for a reason. The military puts certain rules. The reason you can't, sh- uh, you can't shave, the reason you have to shave, but you can wear a mustache. You know, I remember growing up, my dad was in the Navy. He had a mustache. Um, anyways, I was going to make another comment. It would have been bad. Um, not about my dad, but about mustaches, but I realized a lot of you might have mustaches. Um, <laughs> but the re- um, back to the military, the reason you can't have a beard is because... If I remember right, gas masks and things like that have to be able to make a seal with your face. And so you need to remember how to shave, remember to shave every morning. It's just a, everybody does that because there's a functional purpose to it, okay? Um, the city of Bend, when they put in stoplights or when they put in different um, pedestrian crossing signs with the little green guy or the little red guy, they do that for a reason, so that there's not chaos, so that the people don't get hurt, so that when someone walks across the street, there's not accidents and deaths. Do you understand that? Uh, your parents, the laws they gave you, even though you didn't understand them as a kid, they all had reasons to it. When, when society makes law, when governments make law, for the most part, when the military makes law, when things make rules, if you're a school teacher, the rules in your class are there for a reason. You might not be able to tell that kid the reason you can't chew gum is because it's like going to rot your teeth. That's not your reason for telling them it. But it's like if you chew gum, then everybody has to chew gum. And if everyone's chewing gum, then there's gums all over the desk. But there's a reason why that rule was made. Do you understand what I'm saying? Rules are purposeful. Purposeful means they point to something above them. There's a principle, there's, there's a, a good or just thing that the rule serves Okay, so it's a means to an end. So rules, laws are means to ends. They help us get to somewhere that's good. 
We don't ever think about that. I mean, we don't usually break that down bit by bit and go, this rule is here for a purpose. But rules are there for a purpose. And so we immediately react to what Jesus is saying. He's saying, obey my commands. We're like, ah, don't like the word obedience. Um, but we're loading that word with that whole thing that says duty, that says, that says heavy, that says purposeless. We're not immediately going, okay, uh, what are your commands? And, and why, why are they purposeful? Tell me what they are and, and why I'm, I'm supposed to obey it. We don't initially go into it inquisitively. And if we did, this is what we'd see, and it's remarkable. Here's the next. By the way, before we go to that, um, Jesus says, obey my commands. And then a little bit later, he says this verse, and he says, my command is this, um, to love one another. Um, it should be up there. This is my command. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. So Jesus now has said, remain in me, be in my relationship, be where I'm at, okay? Now do what I'm doing. I obeyed the Father, you obey me. So kind of take on the same thing. Let me peer pressure you and, and you become like me. And guess what? You do that by obeying me. And what does it mean to obey me? It means that you love as I have loved. So my command to you is to love, okay? So let's move forward. Now here we go in verse 11. And this is kind of the remarkable verse. It says this, I have told you this, and that's the only time that phrase shows up in the Gospels. It's the only time Jesus uses that phrase like that. I have told you this. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. John uses the word joy in his gospel only one time before this, and he'll use it seven more times in this upper room discourse. Joy hasn't factored into what's been going on. Jesus talking about his rules and what it looks like to obey him and what he wants for the world, okay? He's been teaching, he's been teaching, he's been teaching. And now all of a sudden John uses this word joy, which is rather new, okay? And he uses it in a really unique way by setting it up. Jesus says a phrase that he says nowhere else. He says, I tell you this, the reason, the, 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 the motivation, the rationale, the whole purpose behind me telling you to obey me, what my commands are, what my rules are, and it's all summed up in love. The reason I'm giving you that is this, so that my joy may be in you and so that your joy may be complete, lacking nothing. The word complete means lacking nothing. Okay. Now the interesting thing about this is it just flies in the face of everything we, we kind of learned about church as little kids. When you start with, when the culture takes this view of reality, that happiness comes by walking away from God, what does the church do? They close ranks, okay, and happiness becomes a bad thing. Happiness becomes a bad thing. You can't pursue your own happiness that's not in bounds it's not spiritual it's not godly god and happiness are in opposition to each other so we do the same we make we create the same dichotomy that the person who walks away from god creates we create the same dichotomy but now happiness is bad and we choose contrary to our own happiness to follow god and the natural look on the face with this is a scowl okay and we all know this, when religion is at its worst, when it becomes legalistic, when it becomes duty-bound, it becomes joyless. And so it's an unhappy face, it's a scowl, it's frowning, it's, 
It's like if there was, you remember when you were in high school and there were the, the superlatives, senior superlatives? Like at our school, it was like silly stuff, best legs, best smile, cutest, most popular, whatever, 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 right? Um, it's almost like in Christianity, if we had superlatives, it would be like the best frown, most likely to scare little kids in the hallway, like, you know, most menacing, you know, posture in a pew, um, like, you know, best frown lines over time. I mean, it's almost like the superlatives would be who can look the most grave and serious and joyless and scary to kids because that means they're not choosing happiness and they're choosing God instead. Oh, you know, wow, it's so spiritual, right? But that's what we do. And so the crazy thing is, is when I became a Christian, this passage here, John 9 through 11, was one of the first passages I read because I read through the, the Gospel of John. And I came to this, and I, rem- I mean, this is not a, like, preachy, preachy. This is my testimony, okay? I came to this passage, and I thought of Dead Poet Society, and the, the, the idea that came to my mind was, wow, I completely misunderstood it. Seizing the day and, and getting the most out of life is not running away from God. O- obedience and commandments and rules were there. They were given so that in obeying them, I could have joy, which means like deep, significant happiness, a state of being, like being fulfilled, what I always wanted. And it was revolutionary to me. Like I just got obsessed about this idea of joy as a state of being and and I would talk about, I'm like, rules are there so that you can have joy. And I just, I started looking for it all over scripture. And you'd go to Philippians and rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And I'm like, rejoice, that has to do with joy. It's like, I'm like, enjoy means to take in joy. Rejoice means to show joy. Joy is what it's all about. I got obsessed with joy. And there's these girls at this uh, FCA. I went to this Christian group. And one of them introduced me one time, like, hey, here's my friend Ken. Um, if you want to see him talk for an hour without taking a breath, mention the word joy. Okay? <laughs> I've graduated from that, and now you guys can say to all your friends, here's my friend Ken. If you want to hear him talk for an hour without taking a breath, come on Sunday morning. You know, like, you can do it with more topics. I'm just kidding. But I, I, I got obsessed with this idea of joy, and I began to study, and I learned that the word happiness, actually, is synonymous uh, historically with joy. Did you guys know that? The, the way we define happiness as being more like right in the moment pleasure-based is a really new construct. It's, it's not historically the way it always was. Going all the way back to the Greeks, um, the word there was eudaimonia. It's a Greek word for happiness. And they based their whole ethical system on happiness, Aristotle, that, that when we pursue our own happiness, we will naturally pursue virtue because virtue is what's going to, um, help us attain the best states of soul, the good life, because we're like a machine, and when we, when we pursue virtue, it's the machine running the best, and it's going to lead to the greatest well-being, happiness, flourishing. So in philosophy, they talked about the flourishing soul, the, you know, the development of the person by pursuing happiness, okay? Augustine, Aquinas, Pascal, all of the great theologians always understood this and, and defined happiness that virtue and happiness go hand in hand. And when we pursue what's best for us, we pursue virtue and it brings about the right state of affairs that we have this, this state of being, this joy that wouldn't come if we weren't pursuing virtue. 
So for most of history, pursuing this direction was seen as what was going to lead to the greatest happiness. Okay, in the last hundred years, we've seen the opposite happen. That we have to throw off rules and norms and virtue to go do whatever the heck we want, whatever we feel like, because feeling, gratifying our feelings, is what's going to make us happy. That definition of happy is a lot closer to the, the word pleasure. Okay? So what even, you know, here's the amazing thing. You can go, like, write this down and go study it. Even the, the ancient, like, hedonists, the um, Epicureans, you know, the word that's synonymous with hedonism for us, even they would have seen happiness and pleasure as being tied in some sense to virtue. I mean, you know, it's not what we think. So how did we get all the way along to where John Locke talks about property, Thomas Jefferson steals John Locke and says that everyone has the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Okay? And Jefferson, by that, meant the ancient Greek version of happiness. We have the right to, unfettered and without a government tyrannizing us, pursue the flourishing of our, our soul, the development of our life, to pursue education and the outworking of that in society. That, that nobody can squelch us. It, it wasn't what we take it to be now. I have the right to do whatever the heck I want if it feels good to me. Jefferson was talking about a, a t- the tyranny of a president, or not a, a king, and that culture coming and, and dictating to this colony without representation a lot of things that were going to get in the way of our natural rights to grow and develop and to flourish as people. And he says everyone has the... the the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And what he meant by that was the same ancient Greek version of happiness. So you got the philosophers, you got the Christian thinkers, everybody unashamedly talks about happiness as being part of the motivation for doing good and even following God. You do it, you you pursue happiness, because in pursuing happiness, you really have to pursue God, and in pursuing God, it makes you happy, and these two things go together, they're like, like two sides of a coin. So what happened? Well, um, even, let me just, one more thing. The, the synonym for happiness in Greek is, is makarios, which is the word we translate in our Bible because it, it's the word blessed in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. Why does it say blessed instead of happy? Or, or filled with joy are the peacemakers, the poor in spirit, those kinds of things. Well, the reason is because the way Bibles get translated is the real hallowed section of scriptures that have a ring to them and everybody's memorized them. If you're coming out with a new translation, you kind of don't touch those because everybody would get in an uproar and be really angry that you're changing the ring and the felt quality to something sacred. And so translators kind of follow a, a rule or a law that if there's no reason really to change it, make a, a drastic break, you kind of leave it the way it is. So the King James translated it blessed. Think of what the word blessed means. In the, if you were like Shakespeare in 1611, the word blessed means like f- fulfilled, satisfied, blessed. The, the right, I mean, having your light shine, it's, it's good. It's the flourishing soul. It's the right kind of state of affairs. So blessed are. Now, the word until recently could have just been happiness, and we would have understood it a lot better. 
Um, but they don't change that because people would be in an uproar. How are you changing it from blessed to happy? And then they would do a boycott and tell no one to buy your Bible. Um, but that's the word happy and fulfilled, the flourishing soul vir- with virtue in it and, and the right kind of state affairs, ordering yourself in the right way. And then there's a blessing that comes from that. And Jesus says, it doesn't matter what your circumstances are. It doesn't matter how much money you have. Blessed are. Blessed are. Okay, so what changed it real quickly, because I'm way off on a tangent. Um, The biggest thing that changed it in American culture was a a philosophical shift in education in the 1900s. And that philosophical shift in education was to stop requiring and to stop reading the great classics of antiquity. So what, what we now refer to as the great books, okay? So we, we began to stop requiring people who were going to teach, and then even the people that were learning from the teachers, nobody began to be required to or, to or even read classical literature, okay, the great books. And so if you're not reading it over here and understanding the distinctions and what happiness means and the flourishing soul and the good life and pleasure and how those things differentiate and how happiness is tied to virtue and stuff like that, you give that long enough, a whole culture begins to morph and the word happiness begins to slowly shift throughout the 1900s to be much more, I have a right to do what I want. Thomas Jefferson told me so. Okay? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So don't tell me I can't do what I want. So happiness has is, is shifted in the last hundred years um, to mean much more like pleasure. i got to look at my notes because that was a tangent and I don't know where we were. Um, so coming back to this whole thing, like, um, I, as an early Christian, like, I, I hit on this idea out of Scripture. And then I later began to realize this was not just like this one little verse in Scripture, but the history of thought was along these lines. I mean, isn't that crazy? Um, and so we, we kind of come to this question and we say, what happened in the church? Why did these two things get pitted against each other? How are we supposed to understand that? You read Psalm 23 and Jesus says, or God says, I'm a good shepherd. Or David says of God, he's, you know, he's my shepherd. Um, I shall not want. He makes me lie down. He does this, he does that. He anoints my head with oil. We see an organic relationship that says when you remain with God, just like when Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branch. When you remain with him and in his care, there's a certain sense of flourishing that comes from that. You understand what I'm saying here? There's a certain thing, byproduct of that relationship whereby you flourish that would have always been called happiness until recently. Okay? So I went this way as a Christian for a couple years, and then I got to grad school, and I had so much to learn. I, had, I, I taught this message one day, and this kid came up to me and, and just totally altered the way I saw the world because I was all afraid because it was like I was still new at teaching, and, and he was just able to like make a, like a mean face at me, and it scared me. So I changed my whole view of reality for like a couple of years. And what he said to me was this. He says, you can't pursue God because it makes you happy. That's selfish. You can't pursue God because it makes you happy or satisfied or fulfilled. That's doing it. Your motivation there is selfishness. Do you understand the argument? And I was like, wow, I feel horrible. I shouldn't have mentioned the word happy. Like, I'm sorry. I started practicing my frown. Um, 
started drawing in little lines of scowl lines, uh, started scaring kids. They were afraid to come around my apartment, you know. Um, and for two years, I, I kind of walked this way, just confused about this whole thing. Um, series of events. Um, C.S. Lewis rescued me from it. Uh, so if you want to read books, you can start with The Way to Glory by C.S. Lewis. Another place um, that I'll talk about in a minute is his book, The Reflection on the Psalms. Um, there's a great synthesis of all of this by a guy named John Piper called Desiring God. Um, and then ultimately, I took a whole three-hour independent study on eudaimonistic ethics, which is basically happiness-based ethics, um, tracing it from the, the ancients through the theologians. And, and, and I kind of, after two years, realized, wow, how did I get duped? How did I get duped? Let me show you the subtle distinction here, because I think it's a duping. It's a... a a, a subtle mind game that happens to the church as a whole, okay? It, it sounds very logical. You can't pursue God because that's selfish. C.S. Lewis in his essay, The Way to Glory, says what we're thinking is going on here is that we can't pursue God with a mercenary love. What Lewis means by that is mercenary, you do something but not because of that thing but because of something else that you're really after. So I fight this war but not because I care about this war and who wins and who loses, but because I want the riches or the spoils. Or I'm friends with this person not because I want the fruit of friendship and, and, and fraternity and, and, and that kind of whatever. But I pursue this person because I've got, I've, got, I've got goals. This person is advantageous to my life and they're going to get me this. I really don't care about them, their dog, their mom, their sister, their brother. I don't care. But what I really want is this over here. And so it's... We, we get this, I, what Lewis is saying is this idea of mercenary is, is not a good one, especially when it has to do with God, because he's saying, you know, you're not going after it for the right thing. So that's what, what Lewis says the argument is setting up, that we're, we're not going after God purely, we're going after it based on happiness. And what Lewis says is, it's a false distinction, okay? It's a false distinction. The enjoyment of music is a natural byproduct of going to the symphony, hearing Beethoven's Fifth. It's not a separate mercenary pleasure that you're going for. It's actually organic and, and a part of the thing itself. Does that make sense? Um, enjoying the fellowship of a friend is a natural part of, of friendship. It's not some separate happiness that, that makes your friendship mercenary. Okay? And Lewis says... When we enjoy God, it is the natural, natural expression of that relationship rightly ordered. It's not a mercenary thing at all. It's actually a part of that, that pursuit. Lewis says in Reflections on the Psalms, he says this, um, We delight to praise that which we enjoy. Think of your favorite athlete, um, superstar, movie star, Denzel Washington, whatever. Um, if you're really twisted and you're like a junior higher, you can Miley Cyrus or whatever. But you, you think of the superstar. You enjoy them. You enjoy them. And so the whole kind of hero thing, you know, worship with the lower KW, is because we delight to praise that which we enjoy. Do you understand where we're going? Um, there's a great analogy that Piper uses, but he says go to a see your favorite basketball team play, and it is the 
national cha- championship game, and you're there, you have free tickets, and you're, you're ringside, your buddy gave you the tickets, it's your team, it's national championship, all the energy, all the noise, and he says, this is the one condition. You have to enjoy it more than anything you've ever enjoyed, but you can't get out of your seat, you can't say anything, and you can't raise your arms. You have to just sit there. But you have to enjoy it more than you've ever enjoyed anything else. Do you sense the, the tension? When we enjoy something, the, the desire to praise it, the desire to celebrate it, the desire to manifest our joy, to rejoice, that, that desire is something we can't suppress. It is tied to that thing that we enjoy. And what Lewis says is, when we understand that the, this rightly, God is not a killjoy, God is the source of joy, And when we pursue Christ, we want to abide in Him. Jesus says, you abide in me by by love. That's what I do for you. I am good. When you're with me, I nurture you. I I give you life. It's my love that you get when you remain in me. It, It fuels you. It gives you power. It lights you up. And and when this happens... I, what's so cool about it, Jesus says, I tell you this because, because what I really am excited about, the thing I'm most excited about, is this is where you're going to be the most fulfilled. I value your joy. I value your happiness. And so remain in me by obeying my command to love because then you're going to have this joy. It's, I'm the source of joy. When you realize how good I am, when you're with me, when you have this relationship, when you, you are near me and enjoy me, you're going to delight to praise me. And it starts all over again. How many of you have ever sat there and you're like, I don't understand praise or worship? It's like songs. Okay, third verse, 10th verse, same song, 20th time through. Um, like, I mean, I, I talk to so many people, like, I don't get worship. I don't get praise. And what you're, you're basically saying is music, which we call worship a lot of times, isn't speaking my language. But I also think there's something more subtle here, and that's that when we are connected to God and and enjoying love and trying to love, when we're there, we delight to praise that which we enjoy. We can't help it. We want to respond. We want to celebrate. It is part of, of enjoying God to be able to rejoice. It makes us happy. So here's Jesus. Here's love. Here's our joy. And here's God in the center getting the glory from the whole thing. I mean, he's right there. And as we go round this way, it all turns on itself. Where is duty in that picture? There's no duty in there. It's only like the ancients and like Augustine and Aquinas and Pascal said. They were like, you really want to be happy? You really want to be happy? Then um, don't gratify all your immediate desires. Because acting like an animal doesn't make you happy like a person. Those theologians would say like Christ, look, you do the right things, you pursue God, you pursue Jesus, you obey him, you live in love, that's where your happiness is going to be found. The joy, the satisfaction, the, the, the fullness, the light, it's just going to be wonderful. And, he's, and so they would actually use your desires to, to help motivate you to, to follow Christ. Let me say that again. Do you want to be happy? Then this is not your reality. This should be your reality. 
Do you care about your own joy? Then spend time with God because in enjoying God, you're going to delight to praise Him and His joy will be in you. Your joy will be complete. You will feel good about who you are. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. That's why James can say, consider your trials pure joy. Because the joy isn't the circumstances. It's not animal pleasure. The joy is a state of being. It's a a fullness, a satisfaction. Augustine wrote in his confessions right at the beginning, God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until we find rest in you. Until we enter into this, there's an itch that we can't scratch and we run around trying to do everything that gratifies our desires thinking that might scratch this itch. But it never gets deep enough. It never gets to our soul. We were made for joy. We were made to be able to rejoice. We were made to be able to celebrate and to praise a God who is worthy of our praise, who wants us to be happy. And until we do that, you see, everything else is, is vanity. It's never going to like really hit us. So the Baptist, oh, I'm sorry, um, the, that really was a mistake. The, so the, the, the Christians who still miss the point, okay, um, let me just try and elicit how, how that subtle distinction of you can't come to God out of a desire for joy, for happiness, for fullness, for, for satisfaction. Let me show you, let me try to elicit how that just doesn't add up. It'd be like saying to one of my kids, I have four daughters, the oldest is eight. Um, it'd be like she brought me a Jamba Juice this morning, came up, big smile on her face. Here, Dad, you know, um, shocking to me. My wife got up time change day early enough to go to Jamba Juice, right? Um, I'm like, wow, you know, and she knew it was a surprise. She knew I wasn't going to expect it. Big smile on her face, okay? She was giving me that out of what desire? A desire to to praise me, to respect me. Dad, you're my dad. I I mean, I want to make you happy, and that makes me happy. Look at the smile on my face. Isn't this so much fun? No, Mary Joy. Wipe that smile off your face. Go out of the auditorium, walk in again, start over. And don't be selfish. Don't, be, don't you do it. You're going to get a timeout. I will put you on timeout the next time you enjoy being with me. You do not do that. I'll ground you. Why? No, no, don't, laugh. don't smirk right off your face. Um, you're such a selfish little brat. Every time... Every time you come around me, you know, and you say, Daddy, I want to go out, just the two of us. Daddy, I want to go to the movies. Daddy, I want to go to Barnes & Noble. You're just saying it because it's going to bring you pleasure. You're just saying it because it's going, to, it's going to make you, like, happy and joyful to be with me and to be fulfilled in that relationship. That is so selfish. I wish you'd grow up, Mary Joy. Come out of that little immaturity and come spend time around me, not because it brings you joy, but because it's the right thing to do. Until you come to me out of duty from now on, with respect, saying, yes, sir, I want none of it. God so loves us that you've got Jesus saying and pleading just before he's going to die with only his disciples there saying, listen, you guys stay with me here. There's going to come trials. There's going to come persecutions. You're going to want to run away. Stay with me here. I've stayed with God. I know what I'm talking about. Stay with me. And what that really means is just to love, try to build up, try to bring about good things, shalom, the the way it's supposed to be, peace. Okay, try and knit it all back together with me here. Just try and love out out of the love I'm giving you. And I'm telling you this 
Because I really, I really want you to know the joy of my fellowship. I really want you to know that being with me is the only place you're going to be satisfied. That if you run from me, if you go anywhere else, it's never going to fill you. No matter how much the peer pressure tells my daughter to run away from dad and to do something stupid, it'll never satisfy her the way it would being with me in a right relationship. So it doesn't matter what the cost is. Your joy is so important to me. Your happiness, Jesus says, is so important to me that I'm asking you to do something very difficult and deny yourself, take up your cross, and stay with me. You see, I get this, Jesus says. In the book of Hebrews, it says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What a selfish Savior. What a selfish, selfish, selfish Savior. He should have done it out of duty with a frown on his face. No. Jesus knew the whole deal here. And he's like, man, I see the cross, which sucks. I see the other side of the cross, which is, is such a joyous thing. Brings me so much satisfaction. And so I will endure the trial for the sake of the joy. Faith really means, if you want to understand what it, being a Christian really means, it's looking at circumstances, it's looking at trials and saying, you know what, the, my joy, my satisfaction, my happiness is so important to me. I value it so much. I want it so much. I desire it so much. Not that I'm just going to submit out of duty. But I will gladly walk through the fire to get to the other side because I desire that joy of being with Christ, of his joy being in me, being able to praise and delight in the object of my desire. I mean, I just wish that was the gospel message. If you're walking away from God, you don't care enough about yourself. What? Yeah, if uh, you really cared about yourself, if you really wanted to know what happiness was, you wouldn't walk away from God. You would run towards God because His commands, His rules aren't there to tyrannize you. They're not purposeless commands. They're not tyrannical commands. They're there so that His joy can be in you. Your joy be, can be complete. And so that you can be in fellowship with him. Let me read to you from C.S. Lewis. This will be, uh, be familiar to, to many of you, but it's just worth reading. It says this, If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Let me just say something to that. Jesus had little children, and he had stoical Pharisees that had good frowns, good Christian frowns. He praised kids all the time. Man, it's this kind of faith that I'm after, this simple kind of faith that just is responsive and, and just knows the, the, how simple and organic it all is and, and knows joy, this legalistic, rule-bound kind of faith that has pride in it. Jesus railed on it all the time. It's not Stoics that God wants. It's little children that desire to be with a father. So Lewis says this notion that it's selfish, mercenary, that it doesn't belong, comes from Kant and the Stoics. We could go into that, but we're not going to. Indeed, listen to what Lewis says. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, 
it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. We settle for mere animal pleasure that never really satisfies. It's like cotton candy. You're like, ah, oh, it looks good. Two hours later, you're like, ah, oh, I feel like crap. Um, we go for that and we pass up God. And we think that we're doing it because we desire this. And what Lewis is saying is, man, our desires are too weak. If we really, really, really had a strong desire for our own happiness and our own joy, it wouldn't lead us to cotton candy. How many of you eat cotton candy on a daily basis? You have a desire for health and for feeling good that's too strong for cotton candy on a daily basis. I mean, none of you has a cotton candy machine in your kitchen, and you're just like every day, like, whipping up the cotton candy. Breakfast. It's time for lunch again. Let me cotton candy it up. Like, we desire our health more than that. That's a strong desire. We don't ever think about it, but it's a strong desire. We base our decisions on that, don't we? Lewis is saying, man, Christ thinks our desires are too weak. We're worried about this week, or we're worried about this circumstance or that circumstance. We're worried about cotton candy for our immediate felt needs. And, and Jesus is like, yeah, you don't get it. If you really amped up your desires for what's good, for happiness, for joy, for, for satisfaction, for, for the best, there's only one place that would feed that. And it's not cotton candy. It's not stupid pleasure. It's being with me, doing what I do, loving, obeying my commands, and being able to enjoy and praise and rejoice and celebrate and be happy because it's all going the way it's supposed to be. Like I said, I wish that most salvation messages were simply looking out and telling people, you know what, you don't care about your happiness enough because you eat cotton candy every day. And if you really cared, if you really desired, um, you would aim for something so much deeper. One last thing before we close here. It says this in Psalm 1611. And I think we have to get this theology behind us, this understanding of, of how it all works behind us to be able to understand so many of the, the biblical passages that talk about joy, okay, and pleasure. Um, but it says this, Psalm 1611. You have made known to me the path of life. Okay, obedience, the path, the thing we're supposed to follow is the path of life. You've made known to me the path of life and you will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. There's no cotton candy here. There's only something that will feed my soul, sustain my happiness. You will fill me with your joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. My last thought is this. Most men that are dragged to church, I mean dragged to church because you don't desire to come or they don't desire to come, you understand real quickly this cycle by, by analyzing those guys. And I put myself in that camp. That was me for a long time. But what 
I hear more than anything else from those guys, and maybe you're one of them, is this. It doesn't work for me. I come because my wife makes me. I come out of duty. I come against my will. It's not what I desire. I never enter into this. This isn't what I want. I just show up to church. And it doesn't work for me. Do you understand, do you understand what that, that, that subtle language betrays? It's exactly what Jesus is saying. He's pleading with people and saying, look, you've got to jump in by faith and trust me. You've got to abide, to follow, to remain with me, to have this relationship. Not out of duty and, and not on a fake, superficial, religiosity kind of way. Like, you've got to enter in. And in doing so, there's a, you're going to be loving and you're going to be receiving love, but you have to try to, to reorder your life according to love. And it will, trust me, it will, this is why I'm telling you, it will bring about joy. That is when it works for you, if we understand what works for us means. That is when we get filled. This God-shaped vacuum, this hunger, this, this itch that nothing else will scratch, that's when all of a sudden we find, wow, God is good. God is faithful. God actually does bless those who follow him, submit to him, seek his will. And so you can see real quickly by people that are dragged against their will that never desire to enter in and their phrase that it does not work for me. And my simple question, whether you've been a, a Christian for 40 years or a Christian for a week, are you willing to desire Christ more than your other desires? Are you willing to test, to taste and see that the Lord is good? Are you willing to follow? Are you willing to care enough about your happiness to remain with Christ, to seek to love, to know the joy that comes from being able to worship and praise that which you enjoy? Father, I commit this congregation to you. I commit my own life to you. I commit us to you. You are the supreme object of worship, not because you don't bring us happiness, but because you do bring us happiness. Not a fake kind of happiness, but a deep, lasting joy. The joy that's supposed to come from a relationship with you, the joy that that feels like family and, and parents with kids. It's natural, and Father, we want to know that joy. This life sucks joy out of us. We're beat down, we're hard-pressed on every side. It it just screams pleasure, pleasure, pleasure. It is hard to seek joy, long-term lasting joy by being with you and by following your commands. It's hard to seek that in lieu of instant gratification. So I pray for all of us that you'd guard us, that you'd uphold us, that you'd strengthen us, that you'd give us the ability to forego cotton candy. That we would desire more in Christ's name.